0: Happy new moon to everybody.
1: Happy new moon,
0: brother. Yeah, it's good to be here. I usually get the small crowd, so uh, so it's pretty full tonight for me. I'm thankful for everybody to be here. I usually get to get a small portion of people, but they're always an important people. So I'm I'm thankful for that. Good to see my kids here. Glad you're here. I hope your day's been great. It's good to see everybody here today. It's a wonderful privilege to be up here to speaking with with all of you. I know that I say that a lot, but I really mean it. I really mean it. I. There's if there's nothing more that I enjoy in life than to talk about the Bible. I love it more than anything. Um, some of my friends they all get the they all get the bad end of that because they'll call me and I know I keep them on the phone for an hour or so at a time talking about the scriptures. But I love it. I love it. It's what I want to do. When I teach, I have the whole floor for about 40 minutes and uh, nobody gets to talk back. They can't interrupt me and I just get to tell you what I think for about 40 minutes and uh, so I really like that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I do love to discuss the Bible with people. And so anytime I get the opportunity to do so, I find it a privilege. I find it a great opportunity. And since I've been retired or quote unquote retired, um, since I've quit getting paid anyways, um, it seems that I have a whole lot more time to study and witness to other people. And the more I do it, the more I want to do it. It, um, it grows on you. So, here in the last few months, I've really poured my heart into studying the book of Acts, not only for myself, but also for the welfare of the church, for you guys. I spend about an hour to a half, an hour and a half um, every day researching commentaries, uh, reading the text itself, trying to memorize the verses, thanks to Brother Sandy, and, um, you know, just preparing lessons. And it's just been incredible fruitful for my walk. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a great thing. I've really enjoyed it and I've learned so much. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I've been itching to uh, share this with you guys and all that I've discovered in my study time. I've been wanting to, wanting to get up here and share it with you. And I feel like it's been beneficial for me and it's caused me to draw closer to Yahweh. So I want to suggest to you, if you don't have anything going on in, uh, in your life as far as Bible time, find a subject, pick a topic, pick a topic get engrossed with it. Study it, study it, study it. Just find something to be get get involved with in the Bible. And uh, whether it be a specific topic or a block of verses or a whole book or whatever, you, whatever you're doing, just get completely involved in it. Get engrossed with it because it'll be food for your spiritual man. It'll help you to grow. It'll help you to draw closer to Yahweh. Either way, you're going to benefit from it. I guarantee you that you'll benefit from it. Good studies always beneficial. It doesn't matter what you're studying. I've got a... I got a little devotional that uh, the guy that come a couple of Sabbaths ago give to me, and I've been reading it every day, and it's, uh, devotionals are not really my thing. I'm more of a exegetical student. I like to read the scriptures, but I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. You can, you can just start with something small like that, but do something for Yahweh every day. it'll benefit you. It'll definitely benefit you. So now on the topic of today, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Acts, and we'll continue our study in the first chapter. Today's lesson will be more of an informative lesson, not very technical, just some good-to-know good stuff. Not extremely practical, but it's important that we know it. So let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 14. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter like I usually do because I think it'll throw us off. But let's read verses 12 through 14 and we'll start to kind of dissect it. Verse 12, Acts chapter 1 verse 12, it says... Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive Grove, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Yeshua, and his brothers. And we'll start, stop there for today. So real quick, I'm going to give you a brief summary of what's happened so far. I'm always afraid that due to the time gap between my teachings, there may be some people who don't remember what's going on and what I'm teaching. And so I'm going to bring you up to speed real quick. We have covered verses 1 through 11 so far in Acts chapter 1. And in those 11 verses, we have discovered who the author was. The author is Luke. The recipient of the letter is Theophilus. We have seen the resurrection of the Messiah. We've seen the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. We have declared what the gospel message was. We learned that the day of his return and the time frame of Israel's restoration is not to be our concern. We have, through the eyes of the apostles, witnessed his ascension and have also been reassured of his return by the angels or the two men that accompanied the apostles at his ascension. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff, and that all took place in just 11 verses. So that brings us to where we pick up today in verse 12. The apostles have just gathered together with him at his ascension. They were all there. I assume that they said their goodbyes on the Mount of Olives, and Yeshua ascended into heaven. He's gone now. Remember, he has appeared to them over the last 40 days, but now he's gone off to be at at his place at the right hand of Yahweh, and the apostles are left here all along with a great task set in front of them. And that's to, that is to be the witnesses to all the known world, okay? Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. Let's look at verse 12 again and continue on. Verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive Grove, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, I know you all probably think that that's just a simple sentence, and it's easily understood, and it is. It is. But there is a whole lot that can be gleaned from this one sentence, and I'm sorry, but when I eat, I eat it all. I I strip it all the way down to the bone, and I don't leave anything on my plate. My, My mother and my father taught me, and they were pretty strict, that we don't waste food. So unfortunately for you guys, I do the same thing with the Scripture. I can't stand to leave anything uncovered. I want to know all the details of every single line. I want to try to relive what I'm reading. And this causes me to have questions. For example... I've never been to Jerusalem. I know maybe a few of you have. I've never been to Jerusalem. So I want to know where the Mount of Olives was. I want to know what exactly a Sabbath day's journey is. And why they're returning to Jerusalem. And if a Sabbath day's journey was common and everybody was familiar with that, then why state it? Why state that? Alright, so I had all these questions. So I'm going to share with you all what I uncovered in answer to these questions. So why do they return to Jerusalem after the ascension of the Messiah? Well, the answer is pretty simple. We should all know it. We've been paying attention uh, throughout the chapter so far. We talked about it last time I taught. Anybody know why they go back to Jerusalem? Yes, he told them. That's exactly right. They return to Jerusalem to wait for the Father's promise or the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were commanded to do this in verse 4. And so that's why they go back simply because he says wait. Wait. They're returning from the Mount of Olives, which is, a, which is a Sabbath day's journey away. Where exactly is the Mount of Olives? That's a question that I want to know. Where exactly is the Mount of Olives? Well, here's the answer. The Mount of Olives is, is on the eastern side of Jerusalem. The top of the mountain is about 400 feet above the, the riverbed of the Kidron Valley, which separates the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And it stands about 200 feet above the city of Jerusalem at its peak. So when the sun would come up in the morning in the east, it would shine over the mountains until it slowly lit the city a little bit at a time. So that gives you some sort of idea about where the Mount of Olives is. But why does it mention the Sabbath day's journey away? Well, a Sabbath day's journey is a form of measurement in the Bible. It's a form of measurement. It's kind of like saying a half a mile, or if you're from my neck of the woods, it might be like saying a pretty fur piece. Or a stone's throw
1: away.
0: The Sabbath day journey is a measurement that all practicing Jews would have understood in the first century. They all would have known exactly what that meant. The measurement is derived from an understanding out of Exodus chapter 16 and verse 29. And also Numbers chapter 35 verses 4 through 5. Now let me be clear, we don't see a direct command of how far you're allowed to travel on the Sabbath day. Not in the Torah. All right? We don't see a direct command on that. But in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 29, Moses tells the Israelites not to leave their place on the Sabbath day. Not to leave their place. And this comes on the heels of them getting manna on the seventh day. Y'all you know, remember the story about they're to gather manna six days, and on the seventh day they're not to go out. You, you, you gather a double portion of manna on the sixth day, and you don't go out of your place on the seventh day to gather manna. So if we were to take this command and remove it from its context and let it stand alone, it's very black and white. Don't leave your place at all on the Sabbath day. We could take that pretty wooden and we would say not to leave our place. However, given the context, it could be understood that no one is to leave their place to gather manna on the seventh day, depending on how you understand that, right? But we know a sacred assembly is to be held on Shabbat. So how would you get to the sacred assembly unless you could leave your place? All right. Unless your place is not just your home or your dwelling, but rather the entire city. In Judaism, the word place here is to be considered the entire city. Not your home, but the entire city. And I believe the rabbis of old struggled with the command as well. So in an attempt to reconcile it with the rest of the Torah, they infused it with Numbers chapter 35, verses 4 and 5, which says, Speaking of the Levites, The cities will be for them to live in, and their pasture lands will be for their herds and all their other animals. The pasture lands of the cities you are to give the Levites will extend from the city wall 500 yards on every side. Measure 1,000 yards outside the city for the east side, 1,000 yards for the south side, 1,000 yards for the west side, and 1,000 yards for the north side with the city in the center. This will belong to them as pasture lands for the cities. Now with that being said, the Levites who were the priests of Israel had to serve in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle which was in the city. So they also would have to be there on the Sabbath day, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the only way that they are going to get there is to walk because they don't ride animals on the Sabbath day. We let them rest. Mm. And so if the priests were set out a thousand yards from the city and it was okay for them to walk that far to minister to Yahweh's people, then one could assume that everyone, everybody else could maintain a safe walking distance in order to get to the Holy Convocation as well. And I know this is pretty complex. I can help you later if we can't get it all in, in, one, uh, in one sermon. But a 1,000 yards is 3,000 feet. All right, general math, 1,000 yards is 3,000 feet, which is close to two-thirds of a mile. I think uh, a mile is 5,280 feet. Am I right? See, and so this is how this is how the measurement that became known as a Sabbath day's journey came about. Mm. According to Jewish tradition, it is the distance allowed to travel on the Sabbath day outside of the city. Mm. Okay, not outside of your home, but outside of the city, which makes sense because the Mount of Olives is a half a mile outside of the city walls. Okay, Mm. which, and according to. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, it's about a Sabbath day's journey, not exactly a Sabbath day's journey. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, one could travel within the city walls freely, but only about two-thirds of a mile outside the city limits, walls outside the city limits, was allowed. Once again, this is just a tradition of the elders. We don't have a, correct, a direct commandment you know, as such. But it was acknowledged by everyone of that day who practiced Judaism. Mm. Which means that the apostles recognize this as a form of measurement. They state that right here in Acts chapter one, right. and not only the apostles but also the Messiah. Remember in Matthew chapter twenty-four, at the uh, at kind of the kind of the end of the book, he's he's uh, preparing them for disaster, so to speak, and the Messiah is warning the disciples about being ready for the judgment that will come in the near future. All right, I believe that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that was orchestrated by Yahweh but carried out by the hands of Nero, somewhere around 67 to 70 A.D. Uh, but in Matthew 24:15 through 20, he warns them saying, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place or possibly standing on the wings of the temple, depending on where you're reading at, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the rooftop must not come down to get his things out of the house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to the pregnant woman! And nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. On a Sabbath. See, all these warnings are about having to leave in a hurry to escape persecution. That's the whole reason for that warning in Matthew 24. But why would he warn them about hoping to not leave on the Sabbath day? No other reason. No other reason except the reason is that everybody who practiced Judaism will be following following the law of not traveling more than about two-thirds of a mile on a Sabbath day's journey or a Sabbath day's journey. If you need to escape, you need to flee a safe distance. And two-thirds of a mile is not far enough to escape Nero's armies. Not far enough. So I say all that to say this. I don't see a black and white command on how far you can travel on the Sabbath day. But we do know that our Lord recognized the traditional measurement as well as the apostles. And that is why it's mentioned here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. It's being used as common lingo because they understood it and they were familiar with it to explain how far away the Mount of Olives were, was from Jerusalem. So that's what's meant about a Sabbath day's journey in verse 12. But that brings up another question. If everyone knew what a Sabbath day's journey was and everybody was familiar with the geography of Jerusalem, then why the need to mention how far away the Mount of Olives is from Jerusalem in the first place? I'll tell you why. The man that's receiving this letter is a Gentile. Mm. Okay, Theophilus was probably a converted Gentile into Judaism, but he was still a Gentile mentality, what he knows, maybe lingo, things like that. Okay, He doesn't know. He He's not from Jerusalem. He may have never been to Jerusalem, so he's not familiar. Most scholars believe that Theophilus was from from Antioch, and he may have never even been to Jerusalem, not one day in his life. But he probably has been instructed not to travel more than a Sabbath day's journey on Shabbat, because since his conversion, he's probably been studying in a synagogue every week. Acts chapter 21 talks about this. We start to learn and grow in the synagogues once we've been converted. We go and we hear the words of Moses preached on every Shabbat. All right? He's probably been studying in synagogues every week, learning the law of Moses. So when Luke writes the narrative to Theophilus, he's basically laying out some geographical groundwork for him just so that he understands the distance of how far away they were from Jerusalem. So I hope that makes sense to everybody and you understand what a Sabbath day's journey is. Let's move on to verse 13. It says, When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Okay, so when they arrived after their Sabbath day's journey, they went to the room upstairs where where they were staying. Now I'm of the opinion that this is the same room where they'd been all along. The same room that they kept the first Lord's Supper in, and it's the same room where Yeshua revealed Himself to them in verse 4. I assume that maybe this is the room that they have rented from somebody or some even say that it may be a room in Mary's house, the mother of John, Mark. According to Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, it mentions a room that some of them met and prayed in. There's a possibility there. That's what some people think. Either way, it was a room that must have been pretty, pretty big and would accommodate quite a few people. I would imagine it may have been enclosed or open. People in Jerusalem rented out their upper rooms in their homes, or they used them as guest rooms a lot of times. The sages would use these rooms to discuss Torah. Mm. Okay, they would, they would use them kind of like a banquet hall, maybe where you could gather. So, um, so they they returned to this room after leaving the ascension of the Messiah, they're back in Jerusalem in the room, and who all is there? It's all the apostles, right? All the apostles, all but one. Judas Iscariot's missing because he's dead. We all know what happened to Judas. We all know the story about Judas and we're going to get more into his betrayal and his death in the the next lesson, but until then, I just want to focus on who's actually in the upper room and what they're doing and why they're doing it for right now. So there are 11 apostles left. Without looking at your Bible, can anybody name them all? Alright, alright. Don't feel bad because I couldn't name them all either. I imagine Sandy could, but he didn't raise his hand. So, so uh, I appreciate you following along, Sandy. <laughs> so anyway, uh, there are 11 apostles, li- apostles left, and uh, we can't name them. Don't feel bad. I couldn't name them either. I can now, but I couldn't name them before I studied all this. And so I would imagine if we can't name them all, then likewise, we don't really know exactly who they are either. If you don't know their names, you probably don't know who all the apostles are. All right, Where did they come from? And what was their role prior to being apostles? I would imagine none of us know those things. And anyway, I don't know about you, but I, as I read through the scriptures, I always struggle with all the repetitive names. It seems like everybody has the same name. They had like four names in all the first century church, and, or a first century, century AD, and everybody got the same name. You were Judas, James... Mary or Martha, that, that's, that's, that's all you had to pick from. That's all you had to pick from. There's five different Marys, you know, or three or four different Jameses. And so it's pretty hard to know which James is the son of thunder and which James is the brother of Yeshua. You know, it's hard to keep all that stuff uh, lined up. Am I the only one that struggles with that? No. I hope not, I hope not. Okay, well I thought it might be beneficial to explain to you guys who each one of these apostles are and what role they played before their office as an apostle, now this is somewhat in. Let me preface this by saying that I did not come up with this on my own. I haven't been studying for four or five months trying to figure out which James was which and which John was which and all that kind of stuff. Uh, remember, I wasn't sure of who all, who they all were either. But I have read it in a commentary, and I've checked the sources to make sure that it was legit to the best of my ability. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, but I've went back and researched everything that I've looked at, and I think it's pretty, it's pretty legit. So I thought I would share it with you. So as I go through it, I'm basically just going to read to you what I've gotten from the commentary. I didn't write this. I'm just going to read to you what I got from the commentary. But before I do, I've got I've got some handouts that... I, that uh, my secretary printed up for me, and uh, she, she's trying to make it easier for you guys, but I've got some handouts, and uh, I want to pass them out. I think I only have 20, so uh, I'm going to get uh, Maggie and McKenna, if you don't mind, to pass these things out for me. It's a good way to get to know the apostles and to help you remember who was who and where they are mentioned in the Bible. So these are all the 11 apostles that are left out of the 12. Remember Judas is gone, and these guys are left to carry out the apostolic ministry of Yeshua. So let's start with number one. The first one is Peter. This is just a little summary of, uh, about Peter. Peter, whose Hebrew name was Simon. Luke chapter 6 and verse 14. He came from Bethsaida. He owned a house in Capernaum, worked as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and was married. Yeshua called him Peter, meaning stone, the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic surname Cephas, which means rock. This change of name highlights his task and responsibility. He was appointed as the leader and spokesman of the Twelve, the foundation of the new house of the Messianic community. This is indeed Peter's role in the first half of Acts. He appears with John as his silent partner, as spokesman of the Twelve, and as a church leader and missionary. The second apostle we have is John. He's one of the sons of Zebedee. He was a fisherman from Bethsaida also. He is in all probability the disciple whom Yeshua loved in John's gospel. John was the only disciple among the twelve who witnessed Yeshua's crucifixion, mm-hmm. according to John nineteen twenty five through twenty seven, and the first disciple to see the empty tomb in John chapter twenty verses two through five. Mm-hmm. Paul described him, describes him as one of those esteemed as pillars in Galatians two nine, and the early tradition identifies John as the author of the fourth gospel. Mm-hmm. The third in the list is James, John's brother. He was executed by Herod Agrippa in AD 41, Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, and was the first of all of the 12 who was killed on account of his faith. Yeshua called James and John, I'm not going to say this right, Bo-an- Boanerges, translated by Mark as sons of thunder in Mark three seventeen. Presumably because of their fiery temperament in Luke 9 54, Mark 9 38, and Mark 10 35 through 40. The fourth is Andrew, and like Simon Peter his brother, he had been a disciple of John the Baptist. According to the fourth gospel, Andrew was the first follower of Yeshua, who is identified by name when he brought Simon Peter to Yeshua in John 135 through 42. Later, he brought the boy with the bread and the fishes to Yeshua in John six eight, and together with Philip, the Greeks who wanted to see Yeshua in John twelve twenty two. Number five is Philip, who also came from Bethsaida like the four just mentioned in John one forty four. With Andrew, he brought the Greeks who wanted to see Yeshua to him in John chapter twelve twenty one through twenty two. He is not the same as the Philip who was a member of the seven in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5 and who preached the gospel in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 verses 4 through 24.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sixth on the list is Thomas called the twin, John eleven sixteen 16 and John 20, 24 and 21 and 2. He is mentioned in the fourth gospel as a courageous disciple of Yeshua in John eleven sixteen. 16 who, after his encounter with Yeshua after the resurrection, confessed Yeshua as Messiah. In John 20 and verse 28, according to the later tradition, he went to India as a missionary. That goes along with what Raymond told us not too long ago. Number seven is Bartholomew. And that name is mentioned only in the disciples' list, but his Aramaic name may have been Nathaniel bar Talmay, son of Talmai. So he has been identified with Nathaniel, who is mentioned in John one forty three through forty six, and also in twenty one verse two, though that is uncertain. Number eight is Matthew, who is identified in Matthew nine nine and Matthew ten three as Levi the tax collector, whose call by who's called by Yeshua, or who's called by Yeshua is described more extensively than the call of any other disciple. Early church tradition credits Matthew slash Levi, with authorship of the first gospel. Number nine, we have James, the son of Alphaeus, who has been identified with James the Younger in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. The brother of a certain Joseph, whose mother was a certain Mary, but this is not clear which one. Since Levi is also described as son of Alphaeus, Mark 2.14, I found this interesting. it It is possible that James and Matthew, or James and Levi, were brothers. However, since the disciples list in the gospel usually mentions brothers and pairs, which is not the case with regard to James, the son of Alphaeus, this may not be likely. Numbers 10 on the, number, number ten on the list is Simon the Zealot in Luke six fifteen, who is also called the Canaanite in Matthew chapter ten and verse four and Mark chapter three and verse eighteen, a term derived from the Aramaic word meaning the enthusiast or zealot. In the first century A.D., both the Aramaic and the Greek terms had a broad spectrum of meaning. Everyone who stood for a committed fulfillment of the law could be so designated. Whether this Simon formerly belonged to the party of the Zealots or whether he was at one time a Jewish nationalist prepared to engage in active resistance against the Romans remains an open question. And last but not least, number 11, and the last on the list is Judas, the son of James, Luke 6.16, 6, who is likely also called Thaddeus, mentioned in Matthew 10.3 and Mark 3.18. Apart from the disciple list, he is mentioned only indirectly in connection with Yeshua's last Passover, during which Judas, not Iscariot, asked, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? John 14.22. And that concludes the list of the 11 apostles in the upper room. Now, I don't know about you, but isn't that educational? Yeah. Mm. You can take that with you, kind of learn it, maybe maybe glean from it a little bit. I thought it was educational. I thought it would be beneficial for you guys as well as beneficial for me. And so uh, I'm thankful for Kim to print the list off for you. I've always struggled with the apostles and who they were exactly for the longest time, I even thought that the disciples and the apostles were different people. I did for a longest time. And there were a lot of disciples that never make apostles. Yeshua had a lot of followers,? Okay? a lot of students to sit underneath him. He was a, he was a rabbi, but, but they're not different people. These apostles were disciples before they were apostles. Yeah. A disciple is simply a student of a rabbi. Yeah. but an apostle is a student of a rabbi who has been sent out. Okay, and we have a primary twelve that we've been talking about right there. Eleven on the list. Twelve. The twelfth one is dead. So I hope that that sheds some light on the subject for you guys. It has helped me tremendously. On your handout, Judas Iscariot is listed as well, since he is not one of the since he is one of the original twelve. He's listed on your handout. He just isn't in the text today in the Book of Acts because he's already died. We'll get to him next week or next time I teach. Now let's get back to our last verse in Acts and we'll wrap the sermon up. We just have one more verse and let's read verse 14. In verse 14 it says, All these were continually united in prayer along with the women including Mary, the mother of Yeshua and his brothers. Alright. So we have the 11 apostles who are left along with Mary, his mother, and the brothers of Yeshua all in the upper room and united in prayer about something. One might say that they could be praying about anything. Maybe provisions or safety are the coming kingdom, but that doesn't really fit the context of what's going on. So if we follow the context, we should be able to come up with what they're praying about. There is an alternate understanding to this, and I would be glad to share that with anybody after after the, the sermon. However, I'm going to give you what I think is the correct answer. Okay? So if we follow the context, we should be able to come up with what they're praying about in verses 4 and 5. He tells them in Acts chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, He tells them to stay in the city and wait on the Holy Spirit or the Father's promise, right? He says that they will be empowered. And then in turn, they will be witnesses to all the earth about His life, His ministry, His death and resurrection, which is all bound up in the kingdom message. And so I think from the context, that may be what they're praying about, that very thing. Prayer is a frequent theme in the book of Luke and also in the book of Acts. And it often precedes the coming of the Holy Spirit. I don't necessarily think that you have to pray in order to receive the Holy Spirit. I think I made mention of that last time that I taught. I think the Holy Spirit comes upon people when Yahweh puts the Holy Spirit upon people. But I do think that they're praying for the guidance that they're going to to need to carry out their mission. And that guidance in this case happens to be the gift or the, the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that that's not all that, they're pray- that they have prayed about, but I think it was definitely one thing that they, they probably were praying about. Here are some examples where they prayed first and the Holy Spirit come upon them. And you can write these down. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, they prayed, Later endowed with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8 and verse 15 they prayed. Later endowed with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 2 the same thing happened again. So in these three examples when they would pray corporately for the boldness to minister the gospel of the kingdom. In all three of these accounts they were given a boost of the Holy Spirit to go on ministry. Also Luke records in his gospel in chapter 3 verse 21 and 22 that the Messiah prayed right before his baptism when he received the gift of the Holy Spirit.
1: Mm.
0: And in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13 the Messiah makes a reference to Yahweh giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who asked for it. So there are many examples of prayer preceding the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, what were they united in prayer for? I don't know if anyone knows for sure. We weren't there. There's no way to put our finger exactly on it. But as we continue to read along in Acts chapter 2, we will see that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles not many days after all of this praying is going on, and they, and they prayed continually. And with that, they were equipped for their ministry, right? So I think it's safe to say it's my, it's my assumption that they were corporately praying for the Father's promise that was already promised to them. And notice that they prayed Continually. And not only continually, they are united in what they're praying for. And I think that's very important that they're united. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't seem to me that any one of these apostles, neither Mary nor Yeshua's brothers, are praying for personal petitions. That's not what's taking place. Not there. They're united together in what they're praying for. So what else to pray for other than what has already been promised? Being the empowerment from on high. I believe this is what they're continually united in prayer about. Okay, now this may be the only practical application of this sermon, so, so listen, so we can apply this message to our everyday lives. As we go about our, our lives every day, we have a need for prayer of all kinds of things. Okay, that's common and that's, that's, uh, that's general, and all those things arise, and as those things arise, we lift up those prayer requests for Yahweh to hear and to work according to our needs, right? And that's important. It's needed. It's not just needed. It's commanded and it's necessary for our spiritual growth, our well-being, our healings and things of that nature. But when it comes to the assembly and the corporate body of believers here in this assembly, I think it's important that we unite corporately in agreement for the growth and the furthering of the ministry of the kingdom. Because that's our job here. That's our job. Luke says that they were continually united in prayer. Now, not every now and then, but continually. As the time draws near in our day, as the time draws near and times get harder, it will be tougher to sustain the work of Yahweh's kingdom. It's, it'll be harder. It's getting harder today than it was fifty years ago. Maybe not as hard as it was in the day of the apostles. Okay, we don't we don't see quite the quite the pressure, but it's getting closer back to the apostles' day today than it was a hundred years ago when everybody uh, were were com- were confession confessing Christians, and there was a common uh, churchianity going around in the world. Everybody, if you if you asked 90 percent of the people, they would they would say that they were probably Christians and they believed in a certain manner of the Bible. But nowadays, if you confess the Messiah and you confess that uh, that you're a believer in the Messiah, there's a there's a chance that you'll be labeled some kind of a uh, some kind of overzealous Strict, strict person, and and people people may hate you for it. And so I think that we're we're kind of getting getting back to where the messiah, the, the apostles would have been back in the first century. The same way that that we're in need of the Holy Spirit for power to move forward, or same le- the way that they were in need for the Holy Spirit and power to move forward in the ministry. So are we today? And I'm not a prayer warrior. I do pray, but it's not my strong suit. I hope it's okay that I say that. Um, I struggle sometimes with prayer. I try to pray every day. I try to pray at least three times a day. I usually get about one or two of those in. And uh, I guess it's kind of shameful to admit it, but I'm just being honest. I'm just being transparent. I don't pray all the time. I'm not the greatest prayer warrior. But it's imperative that we work together for the betterment of the gospel message, and we should pray. We should pray continually that Yahweh would give us the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to further the kingdom message as a whole, as a corporate body. This is the practical point of this lesson. I think it's something that we should do. And I don't mean that we all have to be in the same building praying. I think that we can be in unity and corporate prayer, even in our own daily lives, if we're all praying for the same thing, if the, if the prayer is the, is the same. So we should pray continually that Yahweh would give us the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to further the kingdom message as a whole, as a corporate body. So let's be in one accord on that. Let's all pray and be united for the kingdom message from this point forward. Let's be united in prayer for the work of Yeshua, the coming kingdom of Yahweh. We pray that a lot already, but we could be corporately inclined the same way. Last thing I want to point out, and I'll close with this, Who else was there with the apostles praying? The women. women. Right? The women. Mary and Yeshua's brothers. Right? Who do you think the women are? Mm -hmm. I believe that these are the wives of the apostles. Mm -hmm. And maybe also the wife of Yeshua's uh, brothers. Maybe Salome. Mm -hmm. Cleopas. If I'm saying that right. Mm In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul makes mention of Yeshua's brothers having wives and also Peter having a wife. So we know that the Lord's brothers being James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon uh, went on ministerial missions and were accompanied by their wives according to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. So that may be the women here, but also the woman that is mentioned by name is Mary, the mother of Yeshua. Now how precious would it have been to have the mother of our Lord standing around and praying with you for the Holy Spirit. Wow. Can you imagine what that would have been like? This is someone who has spoken to angels
1: yeah.
0: and was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and has given birth to the one and only child of Almighty Yahweh. Wow. Pretty precious person, I would think. She may have some experience in the matter, I would, I would imagine. So that would be incredible, to say the least. And I can't imagine being in the presence of Mary so I'm not, I'm not degrading her by what I'm fixing to say. But I want you to think about this. I want you to notice what they're not doing. What they are not doing. It doesn't say any of the apostles were bowing down to her and worshiping her. Right. It doesn't say that they were venerating her. That's right. She doesn't have a place of superiority. She's kneeled down, just like the rest of them, in prayer. Amen. No, she was praying corporately with the rest of them. Nobody's lighting candles for her. That's right. Guys... She's not a God, but rather she is praying to the one and only Almighty Yahweh with the rest of the apostles. She was kneeling just like all of them, I would assume. See, there was no mariolatry taking place in the upper room. That wasn't going on. The disciples didn't view her as someone to be worshipped. That is a bizarre, strange doctrine to say the least, and it has no place in Christianity today. No place. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way back to Nimrod. The idea of mother and child cults finds its place in pagan worship of old. Nimrod seems to be the start of it. Semiramis gives birth to a child named Nimrod, fathered by him. Then Semiramis becomes kind of a mother of every pagan system of the world. In Assyria, she was called Ishtar. In Phoenicia, she was called Astarte. In Egypt, she becomes Isis. In Greece, she's Aphrodite. In Rome she's Venus, and in the Catholic Church the pagan roots run over as well as she is as well as she is Mary. Mm. Modern Roman Catholicism is not Christianity, people. It is an abominable mixture of pagan babel and Christianity and it has no origin from the scriptures.
1: Mm.
0: It doesn't begin here. We are not to give our worship to any other mighty one, and that includes the mother of our Saviour, Mary.
1: Right.
0: Now was Mary a good woman? Of course she was. She was a great woman. She was the vessel that Yahweh chose to bring his holy child through. And therefore, honor is due to her, but not worship. Not worship. No, she was a child of the king that was devoted to her Lord, her son. And she was there in the upper room with the apostles praying for the same gift of the spirit and the further advancement of the kingdom, just like they were just like they were. The same way that you and I should be doing today, corporately united in prayer for the advancement of the kingdom. Let's stay united in prayer with one another, all agreeing in the same matter, which is the most important matter of all, and that is that His kingdom will come and that His will will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. As I close, let's pray that together now. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done